The sermon text this morning is from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. I thank him who has given strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, many of you uh, have probably heard me say that Carol and I love to hear testimonies. People have been changed by the gospel. They hear the gospel and their lives are, are turned upside down, some in great ways and some in more slow and incremental ways. But we, we love to hear the power of God uh, bringing people to recognition of their of their sin, their brokenness, their need, and then finding hope and joy in in Jesus Christ. It, it's they're always varied. You know, they're always different. Some are through tragedy, some are through triumph. Some come slowly and baking over the years. Some just instantaneous. Some while they're young. Some while they're older. It, it's always different, but it's the same gospel being preached. Eyes are open to the greatness of God. They're open to their sin, and they come, they repent, and they're changed. Now, you know, last week we looked at Paul is instructing this young pastor to, to lead the church to health and strength, and part of that is, is confronting false doctrine. So on the negative side, we're to confront false doctrine to make sure that the church is, is uh, avoiding the speculative matters. Not, not that... Some things aren't willing and worthy of engaging in, but not to the degree that it leads to dissension and conflict. Uh, but, but he gives us the positive side of the charge now in terms of promoting sound doctrine or knowing the gospel. And notice what Paul does where he's trying to show the power of the gospel. He goes to his own testimony. You hear Paul's own personal narrative of how he was changed. And this is going to give... Timothy, the impetus to be a pastor that continues to hold forth the beauty of this gospel. So the whole sermon is about the gospel. It's very simple. I think it's profound in its simplicity. Uh, but five things about the gospel. If you're a note taker, I'll go, th I'll go through them a few times. But that the gospel does transform sinners. It changes people. Uh, the gospel is, in fact, for sinners. It's not for the people that are already kind of religious. It's for sinners. And, and that the gospel declares the patience of God. In fact, the patience, the inexhaustible patience of Christ. And then the gospel should lead us to God. And, and last, the gospel will save us from making 
shipwreck of our faith. So we'll go through this again if you didn't catch him. But first, the gospel transforms sinners. Look again with me at uh, 12, uh, 12 to 14. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, anointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul, last week, if you remember, he was entrusted with the gospel last week, but now he's showing us how he got converted by the gospel. And you hear him speak to his former life, right? He's not whitewashing the past. He's just giving as it was. I mean, he, it was pretty dark, right? He was a, a blasphemer. He, he actually forced other people to blaspheme. And throughout the book of Acts, you see Paul give testimony to what his life was like. So he says in 2611, I punished them often in the synagogues. This is the Christians he was punishing. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. So Paul wasn't happy to rid his city of Christians. He wanted to go to foreign cities. But not just to cause people to blaspheme and to blaspheme himself, uh, but he even tried to destroy the church itself. He says in Galatians 1.13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. So you're getting a sense of the fury and the hatred Paul has. But he even imprisoned people. And the implication is he may have killed some. It says in Acts 22.4, this is the great apostle Paul. He says, I persecuted this way to the death. This way was a euphemism, an expression for the followers of Jesus. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Can you imagine? I mean, uh, your wife is taken out and thrown in jail because of this man? I mean, you see his anger, his bitterness, his rage against the gospel and against Christ is energetic, it's enthusiastic, it's unbridled. I mean, he is a man bent on destroying it. And yet, God saves him. God saves him. He, he says this. He says, but I, I receive mercy. God moved in a way contrary to Paul's own personal will and desire and said, we're going this way now. But I receive mercy, he said, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Paul's not making an excuse for his sins. He, he's just confessing to you. He's in, he was ignorant. I mean, he thought he was doing the will of God when he's actually opposing the will of God. This is how twisted we can be in, in our ignorance, in our unawareness. He's not defiantly, he hasn't, been, he hasn't understood everything and then opposed it or defied it. He didn't understand. That really is the case for a lot of us, that grace and mercy come to us while we are acting ignorantly, while we are sitting in unbelief because we don't understand. And he says, I receive mercy, but he received more than mercy. You hear his transformation. He receives this grace. It says, which overflowed. That word to overflow means kind of um, like a hyperabundance. So think of the mighty Mississippi, right? Just swelling with the rains and breaking the banks. Of course, that would end up destroying the land, but here it changes Paul, it transforms him. He was a persecutor, he's a preacher. He was self-sufficient, now he's dependent. He was arrogant, and now he's humble. 
He's been changed. John Calvin said this, that he raged against Christ and now he loves the same Christ. It's incredible. This transformation of a man from his own words. When you think about your own, if you're here as a Christian and you think back of what brought you to faith in Christ, do you give thanks to him for that? Uh, do you know from where you've been drawn? Now, we all have different ba- uh, paths and backgrounds. Some of us are darker backgrounds than others. But, but do you know your own? Do you, do you give thanks? Are you, are you grateful for what he has done? And, and do you ever, when was the last time you shared that story of what God had done for you? It's a powerful story. You know, we have, Carol has a, a brother uh, who has a past. And he will tell you that freely. And, uh, but he loves to tell what Jesus Christ has done. He's overwhelmed. He can't believe it. He cannot believe that God has been kind to him like that. And he loves to tell it. In the last five times I've seen him, I've probably heard him explain it to me four times. And I know it. But, but there's something about that gratitude that comes from this conversion from darkness to light. Have you seen a change from your conversion? I mean, if you have been converted, have you been changed? What has changed in you? And maybe in the way you think or the way you speak or the, or the way you act. What has changed or what has someone seen in your life that would reflect? Yeah, they've seen this transforming power of the gospel. And maybe they've seen it and they haven't said anything. It'd be something you could actually ask someone. How, how have you seen me change? You know, the one thing that the converted Christian cannot say is, hey, you just got to take me the way I am. I mean, you just got to accept me the way I am. I, I, I just, I'm too old. I can't change. No, no, no. This is saying everybody can change. This is, this is proof for us that the power of the gospel, we don't have to be the way we are. And we don't have to remain the way we are. We can be changed. And, and, and for those of us who have kind of given up on a friend or a, a spouse or a neighbor, they're just hardened to the gospel and we've prayed for them and we've engaged them and it's been to no avail and we think, you know what, they're passing. This is an example for us. Don't despair if a person doesn't have this openness to the gospel. Don't despair that they aren't seeking and trying to find their way out of the difficulties in life. Don't despair over that. I I mean, look at the apostles' transformation. God, he, Paul wasn't searching for meaning in life. He thought he found it. Paul wasn't lost and had a tragedy that brought him to a point of, of just disrepair and he needed some spiritual father to help. No, no, no. Paul was hell-bent on destroying the church. And God said, we're done. We're going this way. And he went that way. Now, think about C.S. Lewis a few weeks ago. How does he, ro- how does he verbalize his, his conversion? He says, kicking and screaming, eyes darting this way and that way, looking for an escape. That's how he was brought in. I think about my own conversion. I I wasn't in the pit of despair. I wasn't in trial and adversity. I was happy. I was happily married, business going well. Things are going sweet. God just said, well, we're going this way now. Eyes are open, sin exposed, repentance done, moving towards Christ. So so the gospel does transform sinners this might be an opportunity to think through 
What has he done in my life? What do you need him to do? What can you ask him to do? Even if you're just partially there. So, so first, the gospel transforms sinners. Secondly, the gospel is for sinners, by the way. Not for the righteous, but for sinners. Look with me at 15. He says in 15, uh, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, Paul moves from his own personal <coughs> testimony about the power of the gospel, and now he's saying, no, this gospel is actually not just for, not just for me, but for everybody. And, and notice he says that this is a trustworthy saying. There's five of them in the pastoral epistles. It's like Paul shining a bright light on a truth he wants us to know. He's saying it's trustworthy, it's true, it's genuine. You can fully accept it. What does he tell us? Well, he gives us really the mereness of the gospel here. <clears throat> he says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. So Christ Jesus, Christ is a title, Messiah, Deliverer. Jesus is his personal name. It means Savior. So he has come into the world. He, there is the preexistence of Christ, right? He wasn't just formed. He came into the world from God. And what did he come to do? To save sinners. That's what he came to do. Now you say, well, what kind of sinners? Well, we read last week, right? In verses 9 and 10, let me remind you. He says, the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, the unholy, the profane, those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. I mean, these are the people that he came to love and he came to save. And you can add your own list. If you're not on that list, I am. But if you're not on that list, there's other lists I can give you. Uh, these are the sinners that he has come to save. Can you believe that? I mean, he came to save them. In fact, his name, Jesus, think about what the angel said to Mary. You will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what he's come to do. It's incredible. I mean, are you overwhelmed by this idea that one from before all time would take on flesh, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who have failed the requirements of the law. He's come to save us. It, it, it's not the rich and famous. It's not royalty. It's not just certain classes. It, this is without regard for class and distinction and social or economic or educational. He's come to save. In fact, the only group that is not recorded here are those that don't sin, those that don't need. Remember how Jesus said, it's not for the healthy that I've come, but for the sick, the sinners. I imagine some of us in this room even right now might think, but, but not me. I've sinned too greatly. I, I've, I've, I've wallowed in my sin. I've enjoyed my sin. I've returned to my sin like a, like a pig to slop. I, I've gone back over. It, it can't be me. That's not what it says here. He came to save sinners. And we see that Paul being the foremost. Uh, or, or maybe you're thinking, well, I'm pretty good you know, I, I, I've sinned, I've sinned. Very few people will admit to me that they are without sin. They, there have been a few, uh, but, but, but just a few. Uh, but many of us do think that our sins don't measure up to the need that seems to be implied 
by someone coming from heaven to deliver us. Let me encourage you to not lose, to not, to not neglect the mercy of God, to see that this is for you. This is for sinners. And if you're not a Christian here, he has come to save to save all kinds of sinners, at, at those who sin greatly and those who sin less greatly. Those who sin with, with, with uh, great awareness and those who sin more ignorantly. He's, he's come to save sinners. But, but notice what else is you know, kind of revealed about the gospel here. The gospel reveals the patience of God with sinners. Now look with me at verse 16. He says, but for that very reason, now remember 15, how it ends. Look at 15 again. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Okay, so Paul is putting himself in a position of being the greatest. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. But then pick it up at 16. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. This is incredible what, what Paul's saying here is that, that I was, in his own mind, the greatest of sinners, and I am, I am being held up as an example for others to show the patience of God. So when, what he's saying is that Paul is saying, I'm kind of a template, I'm kind of a trophy, that you can look at my life and you can say, well, if he can save Paul, surely he can save me. I mean, Paul's a blasphemer. I've never blasphemed. I mean, Paul was a, a murderer. I, I wasn't a murderer. Uh, Paul was insolent. Paul was causing others to blaspheme. Paul was destroying the very church that now he's promoting. I've never done any of that. And Paul's saying, no, I'm an example for the unlimited patience. I mean, the patience of God to endure with Paul. The patience of God to endure with me. The patience of God to endure with us. It, it's he is an example for us that we might have hope, that we might think, well, maybe, maybe me, maybe I can be reconciled to God. Maybe he can actually take all my sins and bring me to the Father. Maybe he can do So Paul sees himself as an example, as a display of the patience of God. Now, when Paul says, we get twisted up and says, you know, Paul says, I'm the foremost of sinners. I do want to remind you that this is not an immature Paul. This is not a young Paul. This isn't a hyperbolic or exaggerated, you know, Paul's just overplaying his sin. Paul's older. Paul's probably within five years of his death right now. Uh, so why does he say the worst of sinners, though? And, and uh, I really went twisting around that. One reason I would submit to you that he says he's the worst. I, I don't think Paul's done like market research to determine all the sinners out there and some metric is formed and he's the worst. I, I, I don't think he's talking about that. I think what he's saying here is that he's only looking at his own sin. Uh, in other words, you, you think, let me remind you of Luke 18, that parable Jesus told. You know, he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were, you know, filled with pride. And so he says this parable, Two men enter a, a temple, the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee goes right up front, and, and he begins to say, thank you, Lord, I'm not like him and her and him and her, and I'm not like all these other sinners. And, but there's another man that goes in the temple, and he's a tax collector, so he's the known sinner. And so he goes, he doesn't even go up front, right? He just sits in the back, beats his breath. 
breast and he says, have mercy on me, the sinner. Now notice, he doesn't say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like, I'm, well, I'm one of these other degenerates. No, he says, have mercy on me, the sinner. The, that definite article means he only sees himself as a sinner at that point. And so if you're only looking at your own sin, you are the worst. I mean, that's all you see is your own sin. You don't have objects of comparison to figure out, well, I'm not really the worst, I'm kind of better. I'm a little better than them. And, and, and this is a mature Paul. So J.I. Packer in his book, uh, Keeping in Step of the Spirit, he says this. He says, it looks as if Paul himself, as he advanced in years, and presumably in holiness, he grew downward into an increasingly vivid and humbling sense of his own unworthiness. And so he draws this comparison. He says in 1 Corinthians, which was probably written in the mid-50s A.D., Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. So he's not the best, but he's the least of the apostles. And then in the book of Ephesians, which was probably written around 60, maybe five or six years later, he says, I'm the least of the saints. So that's, he was the least of the apostles. Now he's the least of the saints. And here would come the first 10, which is the, probably in the early 60s, 62, 63. And he says, I'm the worst of sinners. You see this downward movement in his own recognition of his worthiness. What's this tell us? What the gospel, you know, to grab and understand the gospel there ought to be that increasing sense of, wow, God, you saved me. In other words, I would say to you that it's, I think, a mark of spiritual maturity for us to be more concerned and aware of our own sins than the sins of others. It, it would be, in my mind, a mark of spiritual immaturity to know with laser accuracy all the sins of other people and spend more time on them moving in us a judgment and kind of a condescension towards those than looking at the nature of our own brokenness. That is maturity, to be more aware of our own brokenness rather than the brokenness of everybody else around us. Can you imagine how our relationships would get better if we did that? If we, if we spent more time considering our sin and his greatness rather than their sins and their wickedness, I mean, I think our relationships would really improve. Alexander McLaren was a Scottish pastor in the 19th century, and he wrote these words. He says, The sign of growing perfection is the growing consciousness of imperfection. The more you become like Christ, the more you will find out your unlikeness to him. It's incredible. So, so, so consider your own, you know, the patterns of your thought to what degree. Now, this isn't leading to self-loathing. This isn't leading to kind of self-hatred. This is, should be leading, as we're going to see in a moment, to a doxology that you find in 17. So that's what it's leading to. And you also see in 16 that the Christian faith is not simply creedal or intellectual. It's not just what you got in your head. And you notice what he says. He's an example for those who would believe on him. You know, so faith is seen as we're trusting on him. We're, we're resting on him. We're hoping on him. We're casting our sins on him. We're relying on him. It's a person that we're looking at in the Christian faith. It's not a dogma, strictly. It's not an intellectual agreement. It is a person who has come to save sinners. And he is the one that will lead us forward. And the warning is that, that Paul, as the foremost, is an example for us. 
So we don't want to presume upon his patience. And again, for those who are here and you're considering the faith itself or you're not certain, uh, there is a patience being exhibited like Paul speaks about. And he's an example for God's kindness to us. We don't want to presume on that patience. We want to take even the knowledge you're gaining now and respond to it. But notice the fourth thing about the gospel. And that is in 17, that it leads us to God. The gospel leads us to God. You know, what would cause Paul, and, and, and Paul just leaves what he's talking about, and it's like he blasts off into the heaven. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If you're in a conversation with somebody and they just blast off that way, you're thinking, what just happened? Well, what happens is Paul is becoming overwhelmed as he considers his own life. He considers the great mercy of God in waking up, but I receive mercy and grace that overflowed, that now I have faith and love. Now I love the one I hated, and I have faith in the one I didn't believe in. And he's overwhelmed with his conversion. He's overwhelmed with God being grace, gracious to send Christ to save sinners, all sinners, that, that, that there is no distinction of God's grace being meted out to certain ethnicities or certain pockets of societies. He's overwhelmed with it. And then to use himself in his own deep sin, and yet now Paul is a testimony of the inexhaustible patience. He can't do anything but say, to him be glory forever and ever. You know, Thomas Aquinas says, theology teaches God, it's taught by God, and it leads us to God. Uh, all theology, that is our understanding of God, should lead us to God. In fact, they say, you know, good theology should always end up with a, a good doxology. Doxology is words of praise. If you really understand God, it's hard not to say, wow, he's overwhelming. So, so that's what you see as Paul migrates this. He's instructing his, his subordinate, Timothy, the one who's taking charge in Ephesus, and he just moves right into words of praise. Now, Jonathan Edwards, you know, the great pastor in New England, was born in October of 1703. He converted maybe in May, June of 1721. So he was 18 years old. And here's what he wrote about this kind of movement towards God by the power of the gospel. It's a little bit of an extended quote. Um, so hang with me here. He says, The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading these words. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read these words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being. A new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was. How happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up in Him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of Scripture to myself, and went to pray to God that I might enjoy him, and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do with a new sort of affection. This is the kind of grip that when we get a hold of this eternal, ageless, invisible God, 
who has moved with grace to save, that you just move with, that's happiness to me. That's joy. Have you ever found this in your life? When you consider your salvation, when you hear the gospel, when you sing about the gospel, do you find yourself thankful that you've been delivered by one such as God? When we sing the songs, like even today, are, are you singing them? Or are you allowing the words of the music to kind of speak your own gratitude to God for your heart? I mean, the, the reality of it is that the gospel, unfortunately, I think more so in American Christianity, has been boiled down to this idea that if I embrace it, I won't go to hell. And, and if, if I get it, and if I believe it, if I make some temporal commitment to it at one point in time, I get some sort of ticket that when I die, I can give it to the conductor and I will get on the train to heaven. And, and I, I get it. Some of you are thinking, well, well, let me ask you the question one author asked. He says this. He asked, would you be happy in heaven if God wasn't there? Would you be happy in heaven if God wasn't there? Now, maybe some of you legitimately are saying, well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to go to hell. But, but really? Because all the things that draw us to heaven being a good place, those are creations of God. Why would we want just the, the shafts of light from the sun? We want the sun. I, I mean, the things of God may draw us to be aware or increasingly aware of his greatness. We want God. So the gospel leads us to God, to know God, to love God. That's C.S. Lewis's whole argument a couple weeks ago is that, that, that the things that produce joy in this life can't satisfy you because they're temporal. We need something more. We need the giver of those gifts. So let the gospel lead you to God. It doesn't just lead us to being moral or being more spiritual or being kinder. Those are the byproduct of people that have been with a God who is kind and merciful and gracious. But, but consider with me, has the gospel led you to God? Have you found him to be kind and compassionate and sweet and generous? Yes, holy, but loving. Yes, righteous, but patient. Has he led you to this God? Because this is what the gospel is called. This is what the gospel leads us to do. And then, and then last, I would say that the gospel does save us so that we don't make shipwreck of our faith. And you see this in 18 to 20. Let me read it for you. He says, This charge I entrust you to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So you, you see Paul kind of go into this personal testimony about how the gospel changed him. And he talks about the gospel for all sinners, right? And, and then he, he holds himself. He says, I'm an example of the patience of Jesus to save. So, so if there are those of you who have not moved in faith, move. He's patient with us. We don't want to presume on it but he's being patient with us. And then after talking about the gospel, he moves with this happiness over God. And then, and then what happens? He kind of shifts here in 18. Do you see this? In 18, he kind of returns to the charge, right? And he charges Timothy, hey, you're remaining in Ephesus, 
So you stay there, and remember how he said confront these teachers? But notice what he says this time. He says, I charge you. And notice he calls him my son. So you, you hear, the, you hear the, the intimate words of a father to a son. And he says, he says, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, wage the good warfare. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. You fly over this, you never see it. You know, first he's saying the prophecies. What are those prophecies that were made over Timothy? Well, we'll see them in chapter 4, but probably they're the gifts that Timothy received by the laying on of hands of the elders when he was sent out to preach. It could have been that. It could have been the prophecies made, words spoken. Maybe, maybe some of the elders prophesied that you will have trouble. You will face difficulty in this ministry, but his presence will be with you. He's a good God. He'll save you. So we don't know if it's the prophecies or if it's the gifts, or maybe they're both. But here's the point. Paul's saying to wage the good warfare. Isn't that incredible? Stay your post and wage and fight the fight. Now, this is in the church, right? Because these false teachers were in the church. The battle is, is there. It's a good warfare. It's a good one. And, and what are the weapons that he has given to him to fight these? Holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith. Keeping, that in Greek, it's holding the faith. So there's a definite article meaning probably hold on to the apostolic doctrine. Hold on to the teachings. Hold on to Christ being crucified, resolved to know nothing more. Hold on to the fact that Christ has died for sinners. Hold on to the fact that God has a redemptive plan that at the first fall moved in motion this idea of a promise, this promise coming to save, this promise taking on flesh, being born among us, living, dying for us, being raised, and now will return to restore all things to himself. Hold on to that. And hold on to that and keep a good conscience. What's a good conscience? A good conscience is one that when convicted, you're repenting. It's not calling for perfection. Christianity is not a ladder of perfection to get to the top. And when you finally get it all figured out, he takes you. No, that's not it. It's keeping a good conscience is confessing when we fail. So Paul says in Acts 24, 16, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So when we sin, our conscience is burdened. We relieve the burden by looking at the cross and reconciling with whom we have a disagreement with or problem with. Or maybe it may be personal sin that we reconcile with God or those that it may affect. But those are the weapons. And they make sense, right? Because belief leads to behavior. And doctrine does lead to deeds. In fact, Paul will say in chapter 4, he says this. He says, Timothy, keep watch over your teaching and keep watch over yourself. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So doctrine and life are together. We keep watch over them because they will help us persevere so that we don't make shipwreck of our faith. And that's the warning here, is that if we don't persist in this, if we don't hold faith, and if we don't keep a good conscience, then we will shipwreck, or that's what he warns, and he brings up these two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, who are these people? Well, we don't know. Uh, th there is a Hymenaeus mentioned in 2 Timothy 2. I can't believe there's a ton of Hymenaeuses around, so it's probably that one. And he swerved from the faith. He disbelieved. He, he said the resurrection had already come. So he swerved away from it. And Alexander, we don't know who he is. He is mentioned in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. He was the coppersmith. Paul said, he did me great harm. 
So, so these were active, presumably believing servants in the church, functioning well, who have now made shipwreck of their faith because they rejected it. They rejected it. Now, that's a different word than acting ignorantly, like Paul says earlier in the passage. They rejected it. They repudiated it. They understood it. They got it. And they said, no, thank you. I don't want it. And they turned to the side. And that's why Paul says he hands them over to Satan. This isn't some cruel demonic thing. It's probably referencing they were excommunicated. The same words used in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says that they were handed over, and then later Paul says, expel them from among you. Hey, excommunication is a big deal. Excommunication isn't done because someone sins or continues to sin or struggles with sin. Otherwise, we're all under that ban. No, they had repudiated the faith. They had denied the faith. They had turned aside from the faith. But notice that even excommunication is not a harsh treatment, right? It's not like cutting a piece of cancer out of the body to preserve the body and then, then it just gets thrown to the side. No, notice he says so that they would learn to not blaspheme. God is so great that he can use the activity of darkness to accomplish his own purpose. He can use Satan to make them aware. So, so when, you, when you hear this, that the gospel will save us, persevere us, have, have you thought about the Christian faith as warfare? Have you thought about the difficulty it is to be a Christian? The, the, the battles that go on so, so that, that we have to muscle through to persevere? The Christianity is a long game, folks. It's a long game. And, and it's not an easy game. For those of us who love happy endings and, and the triumphalistic attitude of up, you know, as I said, to infinity and beyond, you know, with, uh, with Buzz Lightyear and the faith, it isn't that way. It, it's, it's warfare. There's no doubt about that. But do you also notice that not just leadership, you know, battles, you, you as well. I mean, you are also called to hold faith and to keep a good conscience. What do you do? Are you doing that? How do you hold faith? How are you actively growing the grace and knowledge of Christ? How are, are you actively, you know, bringing your conscience back to a good state? Like when it is burdened and it's heavy laden, do you seek its reconciliation and make confession as, as needed? And, and, and do you see this, this uh, do you think, and I hope you don't feel like, does this mean I can lose my faith? I don't know that the passage teaches that. R.C. Sproul kind of explains this idea. He says, in Scripture, God moves his people to repent and stand firm in the faith by warning them of the judgment that will come if, un, if hardened and unrepentant. It's, it's like a warning as opposed to an indictment. It's warning us to hold fast to faith and to keep a good conscience. So, so this is the gospel, right? The gospel transforms sinners into saints slowly oftentimes painfully uh, the the gospel saves sinners people from every walk and color of life the gospel reveals the patience of god uh, the gospel leads us to the glory of god and the gospel perseveres us so that we don't make shipwreck of our faith so here we are on communion sunday what a perfect day to celebrate the table why do i say that because the gospel is visualized in the bread and the cup. 
when you look at the bread, that, that the elder will come up and, and he's going to break the bread. The, the bread is his body bearing our sins so that he saves sinners like us. Uh, the, the cup, you know, when you look at the, the cup, it, it was a cup of wine. And Jesus holds it up and he says, a new covenant I make with you. Uh, the old covenant that we failed under has a new better covenant that he has succeeded. And so now the covenant is in his blood. And that means that the covenant is good for us. We won't fail. We won't be thrown out. That he's established for us a new relationship through his own blood. Not through our blood, not through us adding to his work, but his work alone. So this gospel is glorious for us when you take the bread. So, so who, who is the gospel for? What, what's this table? <clears throat> Let me just point out a couple things. This table is for you who have been forgetful. For us, we've forgotten the gospel. We've forgotten its beauty. We've forgotten its profundity. We've forgot its saving power. The table's for you. Every month we do this, just to keep reminding you. The table's for the striver. Many of you are A-type personalities. You get the gospel, you believe you're saved, but then you've got to try, 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 and keep staying in that faith that you want to be part of. The table reminds you, you don't need to strive anymore. He said it's finished. I mean, seek to enjoy him, yes, but don't strive to, to make him love you. You don't need to anymore. The table reminds you of that. The table is for the weak and the anxious. Those who have grown nervous over the gospel. They're unsure of its power. They keep falling into sin. You're not convinced that can it really save. No, you look at the bread, you look at the cup, and you know, no, 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 no. I, I, can, I can be at peace again in my heart. The table's for the proud. Many of, you guys, many of you have done well in the faith. You've grown in the knowledge of God. Your lives are, are doing well, and you're feeling more and more maybe self-sufficient with life. The table reminds you. No, 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 we are unworthy of this great act. And, and it humbles us to know this is what it took me to be reconciled to God. And the table's obviously for the sinner. Uh, those of you who right now, you don't feel worthy to eat the bread. You don't feel worthy to drink the cup. You haven't tried, like Scott was praying in his prayer. We've, we've gone on our wanderings, and we've gone everywhere. And it's like, I don't think I can take this. But the table is not for the perfect. It's for the penitent, those who understand. Uh, so, so let's take a minute and just marvel over God's grace to us in the gospel. And I'll pray for us in just a moment. And then we'll prepare for the table.